morning. I'm um, very glad to be here. I, my family moved to Harvest um, pretty much right at Thanksgiving, so we've only been here about six months or so, and it's really been a joy over these six months. I think this is probably the fourth or fifth church in this presbytery I've gotten to attend, either through presbytery or get to, to attend things at, and it's really been a joy getting to meet um, so many people and churches in North Alabama. Um, never thought we would be in North Alabama. We came from, from middle Georgia for pretty much our whole life, but it really has been a joy. Um, unfortunately, for Mother's Day, my wife got sick, and our toddler has what is hopefully just an ear infection, uh, so they can't be here today. They really were bummed. Uh, we will be back, though, I think sometime in July, so hopefully they'll get to be here. I know they really do want to meet everyone. All right, let me, um, let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for your day. Thank you for the Lord's day. Thank you for a day where we can set aside the cares and the burdens of this world and we can be refreshed in soul and spirit. We can be convicted of sin. We can be spurned on to righteousness and we can see the glory of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for help today. I am unfit uh, for this psalm and I pray that your spirit would be here helping me to speak it and helping all of us to hear it um, with ears that can hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I um so I recently I love to read fiction books and I recently reread J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit, a well-known book, and one of the reoccurring lines with the protagonist, with the main character, the Hobbit Bilbo Baggins, is that he really wants to go home. He, he is soaked and freezing, and so he's just sitting there thinking of his warm and dry fireplace. Or he's starving and thirsty, and he's thinking of his food pantry that's stocked full. He's thinking of his beer barrels in the basement. Or he's, he's lost, he's afraid, he's scared. And so he's thinking of his warm and snug and secure little hobbit hole in the ground in a very isolated part of the world where nothing bad seems to happen. He's, he's bitten off more than he can chew. He just really wants to go home. And I'm sure that thought is something each of us can identify with, is just being homesick. That, that longing for comfort, for security, for identity, for placements, the place you're supposed to be. And one of the really interesting things about this psalm that we're about to read, about Psalm 24, is that it, it grew and developed even as sort of the history of Israel marched on. It was written by King David. It was written well before the construction of the temple. The, we'll talk about it in a minute. There is a degree of ambiguity of when exactly it was written and what exactly it's about. But it wasn't until the Babylonian exile, hundreds of years later, that this psalm, Psalm 24, really took on a, a prominent place in the life of Israel. During the exile, the Israelites were well, homesick. Uh, they they were forced to watch in Babylon these pagan cults worship various gods. They had their own cultic calendar uh, throughout the year, often these nature-based gods, gods of rain, gods of earth, gods of fertility and whatnot. And so the Jewish priest in exile developed a weekly liturgy. So not just on Saturday, on the Sabbath, but a weekly liturgy that started on Sunday the first day of the week, with this psalm. 
with Psalm 24. And each day of the week, they would read and sing a different psalm, generally about dominion or kingship of the Lord, of Yahweh, of their covenant God, culminating, of course, in Saturday, in their Sabbath worship. And what's interesting is that tradition, it didn't come from Moses or David or Solomon or anything like that. We actually know about it through just historic written records of rabbis throughout the centuries, but it lasted from the time of Babylon, from the time of exile, all the way through to the destruction of the temple sometime after Jesus' death. So with that sort of frame of reference, um, I guess let's stand and read God's word, Psalm 24. A Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas, and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. This ends reading of God's word. You may be seated. So this psalm fits nicely. Uh, you see it in your in your Bible. Pretty much everybody agrees with the breakdown of the psalm, which that's nice. That doesn't always happen. But it fits nicely into three sections, and that's exactly how I want to approach it. First, uh, dominion. The first part of the psalm, dominion. The second, the middle part of the psalm, preparation. And then finally, the third part of the psalm, ascent. So, Dominion, preparation, and ascent. So let's look at the first two verses first. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. These first two verses are the chief reason that this psalm embedded itself into Israel's public worship and history. It speaks to the reality that Everything is God's, and everything is God's by right, because he made it and he ordered it. The Hebrew word that the ESV translates fullness thereof, it literally means what fills it. All of the things that make it up, every grain of sand, every person, every bird, every fish, the wind, the rain, all of the things that make it up. But in real time, the psalm took on a brand new meaning for the people of God. It was one thing to recite a psalm like this under the kingship of David when you're in the promised land and your borders are secure, the Ark of the Covenant is in the Holy of Holies, and things are going well. 
But it's a very different thing to recite this psalm when you're a slave, in exile, in Babylon. Great King David is long dead. Great King Solomon is long dead. The temple, not only is the temple plundered, the temple's gone. The ark is gone. God's presence, at least on earth for, for the Jewish people, is gone. And you are cut off from the land, the place where you were supposed to meet with God. And so, you know, the first question that jumps out, is this psalm true? When my reality is that I'm forced to sit and watch this reenactment of Baal using the waters to subdue other gods so our crops can grow? And you put yourself in the shoes of an ancient Israelite. You're in Babylon. Um, I'm not sure what you know about Babylon, but it was a magnificent empire. These great rivers that the Tigris and the Euphrates are so powerful. They're all inspiring. They bring water to some of the greatest and most fertile floodplains the world has ever known. If you're an ancient Israelite, maybe maybe there is something to this Baal or Bel or whatever the Babylonian god was that was controlling this water and this rain. Now, you might be thinking, well, that sounds a little silly. Or you know, maybe for, for ancient people, that would have been tough. But surely, we know better now, don't we? I think my question is, do we, do we really know better? At the heart of it, it's about doing whatever we can do to control or manipulate our situation to get what either we want or we think we need. Now, admittedly, we can, well, we can't really control the rain, but we can largely control the water. So we don't need rain gods anymore in the sense that we have in, in ancient times. But we've, I would argue we've simply replaced that with other idols. I don't know who to give credit to for this, but one of the best explanations I've heard for talking about our idols, these things that we cling to, is that they're like oxygen. When it's there... Everything's fine. Honestly, it's imperceptible. Uh, but the instant it's gone, there's panic. Hopefully, you've never truly experienced that. But, I mean, you can just think about holding your breath underwater. It's summertime. I imagine most people will go swimming at least once in the next couple months. And that um, my, my toddler will challenge me to a breath-holding contest underwater. And there's that moment where you're holding your breath. And you're like, okay, now it's time. I can feel it now. Oxygen is running out quickly. And there's that pain, panic reaction that you have. Um, something clicks, and it hurts. There's any number of paths to follow, but just some of the common ones. You know, is God still God if my 401k vanishes, the stock market takes a massive hit? You know, is God still God if I lose my job, or my choice college or grad school program rejects me? Is God still God if, if I lose my significant other? Insert whatever reason is there. Is God still God if I lose the, the admiration of others? If they see me for who I really am and the things I really think and the things I try to hide so well. And it's so easy to say yes to that question when you still have that idol in your position. We know the truth, but knowing it and living it are not the same thing. I had a pastor one time summarize, is basically summarizing a very huge portion of the Christian life, this, this pilgrimage in a foreign land. He said it's like, it's learning to live with your hands open, with your palms open, not 
grasping and clinging to these things that we think we own. So yes, sure, the trappings change. I doubt bail is a very real temptation for most people nowadays. But the heart of rebellion and temptation and the desire to control and understand and manipulate this chaotic life stay the same. That leads to an interesting point about these opening verses. There's a, there's a very real sense that David, the psalmist, is writing what has been called demythologizing words. I thought that's a big, that's a big phrase, demythologizing words. Let me explain. This type of language, if you pay attention, is actually all over the Old Testament. In particular, this demythologizing centers around water a lot of the time. You think about it, if you're an ancient society, water I mean, is absolutely essential, but not only is it absolutely essential, it was extremely hard to control. You absolutely can't control the rain, but you were dependent on floods or irrigation or all of these things. It was very hard to control. So rain, water, sea gods, you know, these were very dominant in those cultures. If you read through some of the history of Israel, you'll see Baal, you'll see Dagon, you'll see several other um, various essentially water-type gods that the people were desperate to appease. At times, even Israel would try to appease them. They were desperate to appease them because their life and livelihood depended on these water gods. But David, the psalmist, he's reminding his people that the Lord is the Lord of the waters. David is un undercutting, he's demythologizing what would have been a very real temptation for Israel. Perhaps the most vivid example of this in the scriptures is from 1 Kings. It's the great battle between the prophet Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Um, king Ahab, the Israelite king, has just gone um, totally off his rocker. He is just wicked upon wicked. And so God sends Elijah to him says, I'm going to stop the rain. So there's this drought in the land. And then Elijah at the behest of the Lord, challenges these prophets of Baal. And they each build these altars. And they, they stone wood, and they put cows on them. And Elijah says, all right, if Baal is the god of the rain, then have him consume this altar. And those priests, they, they cut themselves, they dump oil on the water, they chant, they do all sorts of things, and nothing happens. And Elijah says, okay, that's Yahweh's turn. So he gets people, and they dump water on the, the altar to try to soak it, to make it harder to burn. They do it three times. And then Elijah lifts up his eyes, prays to the heavens, and fire so fierce it consumes the stones falls down on the altars. And then in the next scene, the Lord sends Elijah to the wicked king Ahab, Ahab to say essentially this, Yahweh sends the rain. Look to the sea. And then there's this little cloud coming. And this downpour happens on the land. Now I know we can we can unintentionally kind of put distance between us and those stories, those people who lived so long ago, because on the surface it does feel a little silly. Trying to appease a rain god. But the core problem is the same. I can't bring the rain. I can't save my children. I can't quiet the guilt and fear in my heart. And I can't find peace apart from God. St. Augustine famously summarized it. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless.
until they find rest in you. And so, how wonderful is it then that the psalmist, King David, as we move to the second part of the psalm, he spurns us forward and he opens up this pathway to meet this creator God and to understand and experience peace and security and love. So, the second point in the psalm, preparation. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall meet with God? Who shall go home? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face, the God of Jacob. If you want the presence of God to give meaning and purpose and security to your life, simply approach him blamelessly. Suddenly it doesn't, it doesn't feel like good news so much anymore. Well, this particular psalm, I, I really have gotten fixated on the place it took in the liturgical history of Israel. So I, I just imagine... This, this priest, maybe a young priest, and he's doing this liturgy with the priesthood for the first time. And maybe it's even after the exile. They're back home. They're back in Jerusalem where God was supposed to meet with them. Everything seems like it's coming together. Those prophecies that the 70 years and you shall return, the Jeremiah prophecies are coming true and the temple is being rebuilt. And it's your joy to stand with the other priest and to lead the people through this psalm on a Sunday, the first day of the week, when they would have gathered together and recited this psalm multiple times. And, and you, you process through the streets. You process into the temple district. You process through um, the court of the Gentiles into the, the holy place. Not, not the core of the sanctuary, but just into kind of the doors, the first set of doors. And then you get to these verses in the psalm, and you, as you're saying it, you see that veil at the end of the, at the end of the temple, and you, you you kind of stumble, at least through the words. You see that veil, and it, it was magnificent, blue and purple and scarlet. It was so big and so thick that Josephus, a famous Jewish historian, said that you could tie a horse to each corner of that veil, and they could all run in opposite directions, and they still couldn't tear that veil. And it was embroidered with the angelic host, with cherubim, with angels all throughout it to block the way to protect God's holy place. And you were a studious priest. You're a new priest. You've been studying. And you knew all the references to the Garden of Eden and to Genesis chapter 3, where when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, God put cherubim there with swords of fire so they couldn't come back in. So man cannot get back to God that way. You're this priest, and this, this crushing reality sets in. The God of the universe, our God, the God of the Israelites, who's supposed to be here in Jerusalem, the one who brings order to everything, who is sovereign, who is the God of my salvation, the God of my fathers, of Aaron, your great-great-great-great-great-grandfather at this point. He's unapproachable. You will never 
step behind that curtain. Only one person, one time of year, for a few moments, who happened to be covered in the blood of the bull, had that opportunity. But what makes what makes this so impossible? What makes this part of the song so lofty, so unattainable? David only lists four things. <laughs> so, in David, these four things: uh, to ascend the hill of the Lord, to be with God. Two in the positive, two in the negative. The first was he who has clean hands. Who one who is externally righteous, who does not steal, who does not hurt others. It's it's the opposite of where we get the phrase "caught red-handed," where you've been caught with blood on your hands because. You are a harmful person. You have bloody hands. It's one who is innocent, at least externally, of wrongdoing. Second, one who has a pure heart. And more than just external righteousness, it's internal righteousness. It's whose thoughts don't dwell on anger or lust or greed or or resentment. Who who does not harbor grudges. Jesus actually takes this phrase from Psalm 24 and uses it in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed is the pure in heart, for they will see God. Third, this one who does not lift up his soul to what is false. Now, lift up the soul is how the Psalms describe worship. It's in quite a few Psalms. And that Hebrew word for false is more literally emptiness or nothingness or vanity. So a really literal translation of this phrase would be one who does not worship idols. Idols are often described as vain or empty in the Old Testament. But of course, as we've already talked about, that can be true of so many other pursuits, not a literal wooden statue that you bow down to. But it's the one who's inward being, whose core, whose whose animating focus is devoted singularly to his God, to his God who is the God. And then lastly, the fourth one that David lists, he who does not swear deceitfully, or, or a more literal rendition of that would be, who is not a covenant breaker. God is a covenant-keeping God. His word is perfect and true and just and right, and he will in no way abide those whose words are deceitful, who lie and subvert the truth, who use unjust scales, who betray others for personal gain. His steadfast love endures forever. Then David says, yeah, that person, the one who does that, who those describe, the one who meets those requirements, yes, that's the one that will receive blessing and righteousness, or, or another word that's kind of in that range is vindication from God. <laughs> it's almost like David's going out of his way to be mean to us, to just rub salt in the wound. It's, just, it's, it's an impossible goal. And for our, our priest friend that, that we've been talking about, this is, this is in a lot of ways how it would end. There's technically more words in the psalm, I know. Um, and in those closing verses, you know, maybe you think of the Ark of the Covenant coming into the city centuries before, and that, that might fit the closing verses. But at least for now, the Ark is long gone. In Israel's sin and the coming of the Babylonians, it was taken or destroyed. And they haven't had the Ark for a sense. Um, there's actually a note in the Roman general Pompey's journal 
where when he destroyed Jerusalem, this is centuries later, after the, or a few decades after the time of Jesus, he demanded entry into the temple. And when he was in the temple, he saw the furniture. Oh, this is impressive. And then he demanded entry into the Holy of Holies. And he goes back there, beyond the veil, and he, rec- he records in his journal, I don't see what the big deal is. It's just an empty room. The ark had been missing for, for centuries, and it's gone. But then, even if we go all the way back to when David himself wrote the song, there's still some ambiguity. It still doesn't line up well. And in fact, if you if you study this song, the more liberal or critical commentators, they, they really do a number. They like to rip the song to pieces because, you know, they say, well, this should actually be here, this should be here, or David didn't write this part. And you know, obviously we won't accept that as David's song. But even if you read more grounded evangelical and reform commentaries, they, they point out some 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 ambiguities, some difficulties. It, it just the back part of the song just doesn't seem to fit well. You know, David wrote this song, but there's no temple. David, David didn't he didn't see a temple. There's no temple with ancient gates and doors. There's no temple. Period. You know, it could be maybe a reference to the Ark of the Covenant coming back, but but that doesn't really seem to fit. There's no clear historical or biblical reference point like a lot of the psalms have. Um, you know, Psalm 51, perhaps David's most famous song, very clearly. After Nathan the prophet confronted him for his sin with Bathsheba, there's a there's a clear historical reference point. Psalm 72 about the height of Solomon's empire. But we have some work to do. And interestingly, for this psalm, once you get into the the time of the early church fathers, um, they read this psalm and they immediately jump. <coughs> to the ascension of Jesus at the end of Luke or the beginning of Acts. So it's, um, and, and actually that interpretation was pretty standard for over a thousand years. It was this Psalm of Ascension Day. So if you have the full church liturgical calendar, you have Easter, and then 39 days later you have Ascension Day. In the beginning of Acts or the end of Luke, when Jesus ascended. And so if you read early church sermons, 39 days after Easter, that's what they would preach. They would preach Psalm 24 on Ascension Day. I think that's helpful, but I don't think we're there yet. I think if we jump straight there, we're missing a critical component of this psalm. We, we, we miss a central element of the entire psalm if we jump straight there. But that does bring us to our final point, point three, ascent. There was an ascension of sorts that took place earlier. So we've already said that in the Lord's providence and the history of Israel and the way he led his people, Psalm 24 became the beginning, the Sunday psalm, of this weekly liturgy. So Psalm 24 was on Sunday, and there were six psalms, and it culminated in the worship on Saturday on the Sabbath. So for our priest friend, or rather, I guess at this point, is great, great, great something grandson. I've been continuing on this, this tradition, this liturgy. That means that the priest, the Levites, would have been leading God's people in Jerusalem through this psalm, through Psalm 24, on Palm Sunday. On the day that the Gospels record where our Lord Jesus Christ began his last week of ministry, at least 
in that form, uh, historically called Passion Week or Holy Week, as the Lord Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem on a donkey with leaves and cloaks underfoot, the priest in his father's house, not that far away, would have been singing over and over again. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. And then within days, those priests that were singing and those people that were laying the branches underfoot, they would have locked arms and shouted with one voice, Crucify him. But how does, how does this fit? There's nothing glorious and reverent like the end of Psalm 24 here, and that's absolutely true. But remember, the point of this psalm, the point of Psalm 24, is about entering into the presence of God, which the middle part of the psalm clearly shows is impossible for any, for any of us, for any normal man or woman, for any fallen man or woman. No. The way back to God had to be reopened for us. Someone had to tear the veil. There's a very famous English poet named George Herbert from the 17th century, and he wrote a lengthy poem called The Sacrifice. And the poem it's a poem depicting the passion of the Lord Jesus from the Lord Jesus' perspective. And towards the end of that poem, George Herbert illustrates this point. O all ye who pass by, behold and see, man stole the fruit, but I must climb the tree. The tree of life to all, but only me. Was ever grief like mine? Man stole the fruit, but I must climb the tree. The psalm opens with a, with a declaration that the Lord is the Lord of all, not simply the God of Israel. But then it narrows dramatically. And the end of the psalm, when you look at verse 10, it focuses on one person, the, the Lord of hosts, the King of glory, the Lord in the beginning of the psalm is the source of peace and righteousness and order and salvation but then at the end of the psalm the Lord is the only one able to bring you into his presence you know, but how? Martin Luther called it the wonderful exchange and he gets it from, from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so to use George Herbert's poem, it's that line, man stole the fruit, referring to the fall in Genesis, where Adam and Eve ate the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then the subsequent state of sin and misery and rebellion that we find ourselves in. But I, Jesus, must climb the tree, the tree of life to all. Mankind committed the sin, but Christ received the punishment. Our hands were stained red, but his were clean. Our hearts were polluted with sin and idolatry, but his was not. His was pure, 
We devoted ourselves to the things of this world, but he was singularly devoted to his Father. What does Jesus say over and over in the Gospels? Not, not my will, but my Father's will. We were covenant breakers, but his steadfast love endures forever. The, the early church fathers were admittedly prone to, to allegorizing scripture at times, and, and what that means is they often had the right idea, but they didn't necessarily get it from the, the right text. Um, but they were very fond of illustrating this point in their Ascension homilies um, from Isaiah 63. And like the end of Psalm 24, it has Isaiah 63 is this back and forth dialogue between two parties. And it says, Who is this who comes in crimson garments? He who is splendid in his apparel marching in the greatness of his strength. And uh, the answer, it is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. And then the question comes back, well, why is your apparel red and your garments like he who treads in the winepress? And then the answer from the Lord, I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. The image the early church fathers said of this Savior, stained red because he alone could tread the winepress of sin. And he took our sin on him as he presented us as lovely to his Father. We're getting close, but there's still one more key question. How does this... How does this ultimately help me? How does Christ get me into the presence of the God of the universe? How does Christ get me home? The original question that we asked, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Well, Christ, we've seen that. Christ and those who are captivated, conquered, and clothed by him. So those who are captivated, those who have, are able to see the beauty of what he's done, their eyes have been opened. You and I are by rights a cosmic traitor. But in Christ we've been adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High. Paul says that for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So captivated, but also conquered. To surrender the right to rule and order your own life. It's a deception anyway. And to bow the knee and accept that you cannot save yourself. In that same chapter, Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air. So, captivated, cap conquered, and then finally clothed. As our church fathers would use from Isaiah, his clothes were stained crimson so that ours could be white. One of my, one of my absolute favorite scenes from the Old Testament is from Zechariah chapter 3. It's this vision where... Satan is accusing Joshua the high priest in the throne room of heaven before God. And interestingly, God doesn't tell Satan that he's wrong. Because he's not. 
So in a sense, Satan, the accuser, has the easiest job in the world. But the Lord says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. I have chosen him. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? And the Lord looks at Joshua, who's just covered in filthy clothes, and says, take his dirty clothes off of him, because I will take away his iniquity. Give him a clean robe. Give him a clean turban. So if you're here this morning and your heart is anxious, and it seems like nothing you turn to gives peace or purpose, but in fact the things you turn to only make it worse, the things you turn to you despise, but you keep running back to them. And you should know this Jesus who ascended the hill of Calvary. He says, come unto me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. It's not trading one master for another. It's dying to self. And learning to understand grace, you don't have to be clean. You don't have to have the answers. You don't need to bring anything. Paul, the Apostle Paul, speaks of the church, of the Bride of Christ, in this life as being led in a, in a procession by our Savior, like a Roman general who's won a war and is leading his army and his captives and his plunder back through the streets of Rome for everyone to see, from the street sweepers to the emperor himself. And Revelation picks up on that imagery when it describes, when it's all said and done, the consummation of the ages, the multitude of believers arrayed in fine white linen are paraded to the wedding feast of the Lamb, following their Savior. And one of the things I've enjoyed most about Psalm 24 is getting to see the role it has played just throughout the history of the church. Uh, and in particular, the early church father's fascination with Psalm 24 and with the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll end on this, but Gregory of Nyssa, one of, one of the church fathers, he, he kind of takes all of these things and puts them together. And from a homily he gave on Ascension Day, 1,600 years ago. He, he, he reads this psalm as essentially prophetic. He says this. This is a summary, but he says essentially this. As Christ ascends, at the end of Luke, beginning of Acts, as Christ ascends, his herald shouts ahead of him to the heavenlies, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. But then the celestial bodies, the gatekeepers of heaven, they call back to this herald. Who is this king of glory? Because they don't recognize him. This one who is clothed in humanity, whose garment is crimson after treading out the sin of his people. They don't recognize him. So the herald shouts again, he is the Lord. Strong and mighty in battle. He has destroyed him that had the power of death, that he might win mankind back to freedom and peace. He is the Lord of hosts, the King of glory. Beloved, there is only one path home, and it leads through a crucified Savior in an empty tomb into the very presence of God. Let's pray. Thank you.
Heavenly Father, as we, as we read Psalm 24, we have to immediately confess that we are unfit to ascend the hill of the Lord. Every item that King David lists, we are guilty of. We are not externally righteous. We are not internally righteous. We are not singularly devoted to you. And we are not covenant keepers. So, Lord, I pray for myself and for each person here that that reality would drive us not to despair, but to Jesus. The one who was pure, externally, internally, singularly devoted, conquered death, tread out the winepress of my sin, took it upon himself, and in so doing, ripped the veil open and made himself the bridge back to his Father. Lord, we pray this in his mighty name alone. Amen.